Sports This Week in Sleeves with your host, the great lord, Joshua Regal and Sleazy K. This podcast has been rated Category 3. No one under 18 may be permitted. Let's talk some fucking award-winning fucking and some fucking in prison camp. <laughs> that, that was more strained, uh, strained. Let's talk some fucking, but nonetheless, that that's the setup. <laughs> we have another category free movie about making a category free movie on our hands here, and this time it has a elite director, movie stars, and stars of category free attached, and that comes in the form of 1996's Viva Erotica from co-director Derek Yee. Also, nude women in a Japanese prison camp. <laughs> They, they fit together just so perfectly. Because the tidy whitey fear is sort of uh, loosely, uh, loose selections, and uh, while well, we still provide some context. But uh, what that is, what that vague description is, is for sure, brothers, exploitation, exploration, if you will, uh, that comes via the distinct stamp of its director, Kuei Chi Hung, and the movie's Bamboo House of Dolls. And uh, I've even forgot, forgotten the year of it. So I believe it's in 1973 or something like that. So it's an yeah. early exploitation and uh, quite your home for people who might have seen a, a movie or two from the director. The Killer Snakes is another Shaw Brothers exploitation movie. And uh, what else? Uh, the Tea House, Big Brother Chang, a bunch of uh, martial arts movies that are actually very well uh, that are acclaimed. And also Boxer's Omen. That's a Kuei Chi Hong joint uh, made in the 80s. So um, he's, uh, he's uh, been around the block mainly a Shaw Brothers director because... Uh, his last movie was a Shaw Brothers movie, and then uh, then there were none. But they uh, carved out a little profile for himself. Anyway, uh, my name is Lisa K, and with me uh, back from uh, because uh, before before Christmas when we last spoke, yeah, the man was going on his honeymoon, and he went to South America. So hope it was fun, the great Lord George Regal, and welcome back to the land of the free and brave. <laughs> oh yeah, I had a great time uh, in Brazil. It was a beautiful country. Very hot. <laughs> you know, over there, air conditioning is a bit more of a commodity than uh, it is over here. So I kind of had to grow accustomed to that. And I had to grow accustomed to, like, every, uh, you know, Brazilian going, are you okay? You're sweating a lot. And having to explain to him, oh, no, I sweat all the time. It's okay. You know, so people didn't think I was having a heart attack. But had a great time. Beautiful country. Wonderful beaches. Uh, my wife and I, we did the whole uh, uh, vacation-y type stuff. We went on like all these different little trips the hotel kind of provided. And we went to uh, these little awesome little beaches that uh, you ride out on a boat on. And then as the day goes along, the tide just basically swallows the beach up whole. So you're just sitting there, sitting at a table with, uh, you know, basically almost knee-deep in the water. And the band is playing, and they might be electrocuted, they might not be, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> well, uh, how romantic uh, uh, indeed it sounds, uh, and I'm glad you got to go on a on a proper honeymoon after sort of uh, just um, uh, taking a detour uh, and getting married really quick and then getting back to reality. At least you got uh, a big proper honeymoon out of it, you know. Yeah, we're going to try to make it a, a yearly thing if we can, just because, you know, so she can go see her family. That'd be great. That would have been the first in-laws uh, meeting, I suppose. So uh, mm-hmm. is it a difficult, hard thing, or they're all welcoming? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a new hobby. So 
say hello and be welcoming kind of thing or is it just like in fool's rush in because i based all my experiences of uh, of uh, these kind of things on movies man off the matthew perry movie yeah yeah, yeah bitch <laughs> <laughs> that's a deep cut <laughs> <laughs> Like, I can't be judgmental because I think I saw that in the movie theater. <laughs> Granted, it is Mexico in that movie and not Brazil, but still. Still. Right? <laughs> I guess it was uh, very... Uh, they they were wonderful. They're great people. They're so sweet and uh, they tolerated... You know, I was over there, the dumb American, didn't speak the language. I tried and then when I would try, it just sounded like an idiot. <laughs> and so... Uh, why would it be dumb if you tried and tried to be proactive and active in uh, learning the culture and language? Why would that be dumb? The dumb thing would be like, hey, where's the nearest KFC? That would be that would be Homer Simpson style dumbass stuff. And you're not that person. <laughs> that was actually a pretty good Homer. Do you, you you can have a, a very practical, uh, practical sort of learning experience, obviously. Uh, having a wife is, is bilingual, so obviously you you can pick up on uh, pick up on the Brazilian. Uh, it's, I, I'm 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 totally ignorant. It's Portuguese, but Brazilian Portuguese is one thing. Um, mm-hmm. Portuguese Portuguese is another thing. Yeah, a lot of the South American languages and stuff like that. It's very similar from what I gather. So my wife speaks Spanish, Portuguese, and English. Like I've seen stuff from Portugal, and it doesn't look like she has any trouble understanding that either. So. Just a hodgepodge of uh, languages there. I understand English, Pig Latin, and whatever the fuck it is we speak in the South. Well, there you go. Cultural across the board, so you can't fail uh, traveling the world, essentially. As as two, as a duo, you and your wife. It, it, you know, it was uh, kind of scary just how fucking vulnerable you are when you're in a, another country and you don't speak the language. So I was like just tied to my wife's hip at all times, just praying that other people won't walk up to me and start speaking. I remember like this little old lady walks up to me and she just starts rattling off the Portuguese. And I'm just like, "Uh, no fala portuguese. And they're just like, oh, no fala portuguese. And they just keep going. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm just waiting for somebody to walk up and rob me. Yeah, that's the attitude to to have in a foreign country. (laughs) Well, I mean, my wife scares the shit out of me even worse about it because, you know, you hear the stories about it being dangerous and stuff like that. And then I go to her and I'm like, eh, it's probably not really that bad, right? And she's like, oh, no, it's much worse. Or maybe it isn't. And you're like, what? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe she's just doing it to scare the piss out of me. But one night, like, we're over there and they tell me and I'm like, let me tell you something. You haven't lived until you've rode in a cab in Brazil because uh, it's the most terrifying thing ever. It just seems like you're going to wreck it every moment. Nope, like traffic laws are kind of like, you know, yeah, if you want to follow them, that's cool, but we're all not going to. So you'll be, you know, four-way stop signs, like everybody pulls up to it, and then it's just law of the land, just go. You know, whoever gets there first is the one who's right, you know. So the cops aren't pulling anybody over for most traffic violations that I saw. And then uh, at night, after about 10 p.m., red lights, stop signs, stop signs and red lights are just, you don't follow them at all, they say. They, they tell you that uh, it's perfectly legal to run them after about 10 p.m. because if you stay and stop at a stop sign or a red light, you're more likely to get uh, robbed. So if you get picked up in an Uber or something like that and they just blow through all the lights, 
one night we're we're about it's about eleven o'clock. We're leaving one of her in laws or one of my in laws, and uh, we're leaving their house. And like every house has bars, like a front gate basically. And uh, this they had shutters that they held down that they locked in place. So we're like waiting, and uh, they had the shutters go like uh, horizontal, not vertically. And now. Uh, they open the shutters and they're looking out, just trying to see, is there anybody in the streets? And, of course, I, I don't speak any Portuguese, so this is all happening around me. And my wife would occasionally translate what the hell we're doing. So there's, like, four people in the garage with the shutter, like, halfway open. And she's just like, oh, well, they got some crackheads down the street. And everybody just wants to make sure that they're not there. So when we go outside, run to the car as fast as you can. <laughs> Some you know they got some eyes sitting there opening the uh, shutter just a little bit, peeking their eye out, trying to stick their head out as much as they can to see left and right, making sure nobody's there. And then three, two, one, whoop! Everybody runs to the car, jumps inside, and then they take off. And the one person who was left at the house immediately slams the door behind him and locks it. That shit, it was crazy. Well, you know the word for run by now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you fucked. <laughs> I just, I'm good at following, you know, just the signs. But get the fuck out of here, run! <laughs> Wait a minute. Does it really mean run? Or are you me? Are you talking symbolically? Like, you dumbass! <laughs> <laughs> I'm following body language. Everybody's just pouring through that door as quick as possible, so I'm following right behind them. And I'm not usually one of those people. I don't usually worry about crime, even in, like, the bad neighborhoods and stuff like that. I never, like, I've been in some pretty rough places. New Orleans is not a great place. We have, we've been the murder capital of uh, the United States numerous, numerous times. So, you know, I'll drive through, oh yeah, New Orleans is terrible. And I'll drive through there a lot of times. I try, of course, I try to avoid, like, the worst neighborhoods. But crazy thing about New Orleans is you'll be driving and you're in a college neighborhood. And then the very next, you know, block, you're basically in, in the projects. So you got to be careful where you go. But I, I, I never have that fear around there. But when I'm sitting there watching a bunch, like four or five grown adults treating this situation as serious as they did, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I do need to actually be worried for my life a little bit right now. Otherwise, it was a splendid time. Counter's Otherwise, great. <laughs> it was great. Oh, I got burnt the fuck up. Oh, can you? If you get burnt, imagine me as a, well... I, I was ginger. My my my, my natural hair is uh, brown now, but you can imagine ginger, uh, what my skin uh, properties are like. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you burn, then I'll just uh, burn up and uh, disintegrate. Oh, I had like uh, the whole water blisters all over my body uh, from the sun. You ever had you ever had to burn that bad? I can just imagine though. It's pretty horrible. Other than that, that <laughs> sounds bad, but it's actually a wonderful place, and uh, I look forward to going again. Well, um, it's all for, um, I was about to say, a good cause. Obviously, the, the motivational factor is doing all of that together and experiencing uh, mm -hmm. new things together and emerging your worlds and all of that. So uh, that's... All for love. Exactly. So that's certainly a motivation. So uh, uh, next time, watch City of God before you go. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was bullshit. I was like, hey, <laughs> nope, come on. I'm here to tell you guys, <laughs> essentially a documentary. <laughs> well, he, my wife, uh, she will tell you that. She, she's like, uh, she doesn't know the English title for the film, but uh, whatever it is, something Deus, 
but what she, she tells people to watch that movie, you know, to get a feel for uh, some of the favelas over there. Sweet. Well, I'm, I'm glad you still had a wonderful time and uh, more experiences to come. So, uh, and uh, happy to have you back in the in the, in the booth here, so to say. And uh, let's uh, get things going. Uh, running through the contact information really quick because I'm keen on discussing maybe what maybe it will be our last category free movie that's about making these movies because I can't think of anyone else uh, currently. But uh, if so, we're ending with uh, the the big one directed by. Award-winning director, a movie that received awards, period. <laughs> so, acting awards. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, our lead again of erotic movie star wasn't the recipient of such uh, honors, even though that was it a good movie. Me. No, Joshua, I'm actually, actually serious. It did not get nominated. Believe it or not, lead again didn't get to go all the way to the Not statues. even at, like, uh, best uh, foreign picture at the Oscars? Nothing? No, they saw the spelling and then said, you're out of here. You know, <laughs> you're a good movie, but you're out of here. But uh, regardless, we're, we're going to get this uh, thing going. Uh, this is This Week in Sleaze and for all your podcast on Fire Network needs, where we are included, we have a backlog of shows on category-free movies from Hong Kong or Taiwan or the likes. They may be softcore, they may be hardcore even. Uh, they deal in true crime and uh, they deal in... The content of uh, making category-free movies, uh, as we will discuss today, among other things. And uh, go to podcastonfire.com if you want to get the access to the backlog. Obviously, listen to us on our iTunes and Stitcher and uh, all of that good stuff. And follow us over on social media to tell us what you thought of, for instance, Viva Erotica or Bamboo House of Dolls. And uh, convenient buttons are located at the top of our website to Facebook, Twitter, obviously, again, our iTunes feed, as well as our Stitcher radio presence. Uh, and I review a bunch of these movies from Hong Kong and Taiwan over on SoGoodReviews.com. Uh, my video hub is LisaKVideo.com and uh, my tweets are available at SoGoodReviews. And uh, all of that good stuff is uh, available in the show post uh, for convenient uh, convenient uh, uh, web browsing, web surfing. Does anyone say surfing the web anymore? That was a cool uh, little... Uh, Late 90s, like, you're surfing the web. No one says that anymore. You've got mail. Exactly. <laughs> How about reference to Zero Wing? Oh, that went over my head, man. Oh, somebody set up us the bomb. You don't remember that one? Nope, nope. Never reached no. Sweden, apparently. Okay. All right. Some fucker out there knows what I'm talking about. Well, um, I'm still using Netscape, obviously. That's my browser. <laughs> <laughs> Got your Hotmail account, your AOL account. Mm-hmm. Actually currently using an AOL disk to uh, get your free month worth of internet. Yep, got 20 hours of free internet. So I'm using that uh, sparsely. Uh, let, let's do a musical break and uh, get our internet uh, revved up, you know, uh, to make sure we can do this. Uh, <laughs> <yo. What>? <laughs> right. <laughs> We need to, like, to turn the handle or anything, crank the handle to make sure the internet lasts. Crank so up our internet. Because, <laughs> kids, back in the day, we started our internet essentially like generators. <laughs> if you don't believe me, ask your parents. It's a series of tubes. Exactly. And you shouldn't be listening to this show anyway if you're a kid. So uh, we're going to discuss adult stuff here. And the first adult uh, piece of information we're going to deliver to you after the musical break is the review of Viva Erotica from 1996, award-winning 
movie about making uh, less than award-winning looking category free movie within the movie. It's all coming up after the musical break. And welcome back and this is our review of Viva Erotica from 1996 and the plot from my review of the film Sing played by Leslie Cheung is a writer-director whose last few movies haven't done any good business at the box office. He starts looking for other career paths to uh, pursue but his uh, producer friend Cheung played by Law Kaying approaches him about directing uh, a commercial softcore category 3 rated movie. Sing is more of an artist and see no opportunity to, dis- to display that in this project. Times are still tough though, and Singh accepts the offer to make the movie. So that sets us off onto our uh, adventure of making this a triad-financed uh, rip-off of Seven. <laughs> but with <laughs> c- comedy and erotica, that's how they sort of... Uh, well, we'll get to that note in the movie, but uh, they, ride, uh, they ride the wave of uh, popular movies. They attempt anyway to do that. Derek Yee, the co-director, uh, award-winning director, very well known, and he is the brother of kung fu actor and uh, director himself, uh, David Chang, as well as Paul Chun-Pei. And uh, Paul Chun-Pei is the actor in this movie who plays the uh, triad investor. He often uh, appeared in his own brother's uh, uh, movies, so uh, that's a little uh, family connection. He is primarily primarily known as a director, Derek E, but he was a contract player as an actor for Shaw Brothers uh, for a period in the 70s and 80s. He starred in, among other things, uh, director Choyun's Death Duel, which Derek E himself remade as Swordmaster one or two years ago. Uh, did you um, see that by any chance? Because it's like a Netflix title or well-go title, or that, that didn't uh, interest you, uh, that movie, Swordmaster? I never know, you know, like, recent films and stuff like that uh, i never know what to jump on it just seems like uh a lot of stuff gets released over here mostly through uh what's that brand uh wellgo usa releases basically fucking everything regardless of content or quality and so i i'm hesitant often to jump on uh, new stuff unless i i'm familiar with like a actor uh they gotta have a few selling points because everybody's making so much shit these days but um no, I didn't see it, but I'm familiar with the original. Yeah, and for all, he, he starred in it, and uh, it, it was very sure. And uh, for once, coming from that director, and when I say very sure, it, it was uh, a very studio-bound movie, which added to that movie's mood, a very fantasy-tinted mood. But coming from that director, who often made these impossible, impossible to follow sword play movies, that, that one was pretty uh, straightforward, and uh, it was an early lead role for... For Derek, yeah. And it wasn't the only time he appeared in these crazily confusing swordplay movies for that director. Um, and um, then when the Shaw Brothers uh, 10 years or so ended, he broke out as, as an award-winning director himself. Which started with the hard-hitting social commentary of the Lunatics. Which features an award-winning performance by his brother again, Paul Chun. Um, who then plays the triad investor here in Viva Erotica. Uh, it's, the, the social commentary is about... Um, 
commentary is about mental illness and uh, how society uh, treats it and um, de- deals with it and takes care of such people who are trying to uh, get better and uh, get uh, get out of institutions and into society again. And that movie turns quite dark uh, as a result of all of that. Uh, he's uh, Derek that is scored a big award winner in the 90s with the popular melodrama Celery Mon Cherie and that was in 1993 but he has crossed over on, into multiple genres and moods uh, he did the um, again the drama Lost in Time uh, the Daniel Wu Cecilia Cheung movie One Night in Mong Kok uh, Chinjuku Incident with Jackie Chan and also the mentioned Swordmaster in 2016 produced by Choi Hak his uh, co-director for this movie, Lord Chilung, presumably a bit of a protege of Yi's as uh, he's sharing credits here, but his initial solo works uh, as a director, Lord Chilung, were both written and or produced by Derek, including the horror movie In the Census, which was uh, Leslie Chung's last movie before um, he took his own life in 2003, Leslie Chung. And, uh, I mean, it's actually a good horror movie. It's one of those movies that now it's more known because it ends almost on the same note as real life unfortunately because the, that movie ends with leslie chung's character jumping from a building and that's what uh, happened in um, in reality as well uh, when he took his life and had that not happened how awkward. there's a scene in this movie that's very yeah you know what i'm talking about yeah i, I do and um it could have happened there, there, there's actually a story behind that um that you're referring to uh it's not uh, far from reality what derek is said <laughs> actually uh, a bit humorous here but uh, uh, believe me it's not a it's not an accident that uh, he references himself in the movie because it it uh, was based on experience uh, prior but uh, I actually have that story in my notes as well Viva Erotica became an award-winning film it was nominated for best picture director actor score etc but it was actress Shuke that walked away winning two awards Joshua how is that possible, you ask? Well, we want to give it a shot in terms of uh, how can an actor walk away with two uh, two awards uh, during the same ceremony. All right, let me give it give it a shot here. Um, for the same film, right? Yes. Best actress? No, not quite. Best supporting actress, but, but yes. Fuck! I, that was going to be my other one. I was going to go with both of them. Well, they they actually have a best new performer category at the Hong Kong Film Awards, so that's how she got Son two of, of them. Son of a bitch! God damn it! <laughs> and 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 this is um, you know, in 1996 she also did uh, Sex and Sin too, but it uh, still in that year represented her sort of newly found acclaim as as a proper Not actress. Not as much love for Sex and Sin too, huh? Not by the awards uh, juries, that's for sure, but uh, here she is still uh, you know, she still does nudity and uh, all of that, so it's a category free movie, but uh, it would set her on a path of um, leaving category free behind and uh, getting... Uh, it seemed for a while she got a, an award every year or a nomination every year, and she actually deserved that and then some because she did a bunch of good movies uh she had a good run uh i believe her second hong kong film award was for the movie portland street blues which is an offshoot from the young and dangerous universe uh, but um she uh she uh she started to do good and uh, started to develop and uh and uh, that was nice to see because I think she fully earned it. But in this movie, we get bo- the best of both worlds, if you will. We, we got the uh, UK while she was still making Category 3, but also the signs of um, her being um, up to the task of acting. 
So let's get on with it. Uh, short opinions. Uh, Joshua, uh, Viva Erotica, another movie about making category-free category movie, regardless if it's your favorite out of this run that includes, you know, Ledgen and Bulgaria and Temptation Summary 2. What did you think of Viva Erotica? It's probably the best of the bunch as far as like from pure technical standpoint and also has the most to say probably of the films that we've covered. I think that it's highly entertaining. I think that it's also uh, technically astonishing at times. And uh, what a fucking cast, you know. All stars came out and they didn't mind that this was... um an adults-only film. They didn't shy away from that. So. And and I agree, in all simplicity, it is a funny, sweet, and witty portrayal of the Hong Kong cinema we love. Uh, it's an industry that the directors, Derek Yee and the new kid, Lord Chi Long, that they love as well. And for all its ups and downs, I guess, uh, for all the ups and downs you can experience personally, uh, the way commercialism changes over time, they still love their Hong Kong cinema. It's It's not very grand and demanding, but it's not aiming to be grand and demanding but to be uh, fun and witty and and then have something to say that's very approachable and very, you can um, you you understand what you're saying essentially you ask yourself just because we got stars here and award-winning director everything's high profile would this be a stuffy movie or would it shy away from the subject but it certainly doesn't which is good because we watch these movies, Joshua, they seem to be on the fringe sometimes uh, from some of the classier works. And isn't it cool that a, a, you know, a grade-A production knew exactly what, that this was part of Hong Kong cinema and they threw themselves into it uh, fully and tried to acknowledge what, what place it has in Hong Kong cinema. Like, like, uh, I, for, for me, that that's delightful that... Uh, they're uh, they're they're not uh, too, they're not above this is what I'm saying. So uh, isn't that great? All you need to know is that there are still come jokes, you know. Even even if uh, this has uh, kind of an all star cast and you got Karen Mock in there and everything like that, we're still we're still making come jokes. Well, they're they're, they're making these kind of movies in the movies. So, uh, <laughs> but 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 you're right. That that's uh, that was mega disgusting that that joke (laughs) (laughs) and uh, they they also make jokes about uh, the um, the process of making these movies and that it's kind of a lock and laugh sometimes so um, especially because Hong Kong cinema thinks on its feet and uh, they don't have techniques set in place so that's why we get that scene in uh, in the first third of uh, the person who covers up his uh, genitals by essentially like bandaging it and not that they don't have uh, flesh colored uh, underwear or anything like <laughs> so it's that w- wonderful tilt down onto that uh, actor who has bandaged up his, his cock <laughs> who's operating the camera to like sit there and like focus directly on the dick that's uh that's the great a crew we got here you know uh the the, the cinematographer is jingle ma who's a crappy director in in real life uh but uh, he's a wonderful cinematographer so uh that's uh, uh, uh jingle is the director of all those soul raider movies tokyo raiders movies and and uh yeah crap but he's a wonderful cinematographer but i i, I do like that they, they are they give us a view of um of uh, not the nudity immediately but Derek and Law they essentially get the sex scene out of the way 
immediately and uh, to get this sort of raw primal feeling out of the way immediately but it, but it sort of plays into um, it, it, it's fantasy it looks like fantasy it looks like it's a crappy vampire sex movie so that starts the notion of uh, the movie's uh, stylish traits connecting to leslie chung's uh, uh, mind you know his uh, fantasy while having sex but also his fantasy is uh, uh, about filmmaking and stuff. Uh, what did you think of that? Do you think it was fun, or was it uh, also part of sort of the message of uh, the movie, the various fantasy sequences? I don't. I don't think it's necessarily just an excuse to be creative and fancy, but uh, it was certainly welcomed as such. You know, I think that uh, it definitely fits in with the character. It makes for some of the more entertaining parts of the film. I have one question. Sure thing. I, I just have to know. So the Jingle Ma. Did he... What the fuck? Was it like... Do we have to talk about Jingle Ma? I'm so sorry I brought him up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wow, it's one of those Raiders movies, I thought, where... Uh, fucking, they, they fought robots? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't about? know. Like, and, and it was in America, mostly? <laughs> it was like, oh, sh- Tokyo Raiders or something? It, well, well, he did that uh, Silver Hawk movie with Michelle Yeoh as well. That was a very good. And it's uh, like Andrew Lau. He's, he's a great cinematographer, but the movies that he ventures into, I mean, the odds are that they're not gonna be good. I've got a new idea for a podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> the map. This is not my cost. This is the Ma cost. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, uh, looking at his filmographies, I mean, he's, uh, I don't know. You, you you might be referencing an actual movie, but I'm not sure. Um, it, wa- it was one of the Raiders movies because one was Tokyo, one was Soul Raiders, and he's doing another one called Paris Raider. <sighs> oh, there you go. Perfect. So wonder why that's going to take place. But he's a wonderful cinematographer and a creative cinematographer. And he gets a workout like you read about for these fantasy sequences. That are, you know, they're, they're, they're funny because uh, he clearly is stuck in his own head, Leslie Chung. But um, they do uh, represent a little bit how he progresses as a filmmaker in the movie, the character, and how he thinks and how he now starts to enjoy the process of filmmaking. Because when you look at him, in the office with Lo Kaying and uh, Paul Chun and they're doing the pitch. Leslie is just timid. And he he clearly doesn't want to be there and he doesn't have a... He, he's at a pitch man or anything. He just sort of says under his breath, yeah, it's, it's a killer at the MTR and he follows her and... Uh, and it's kind of, uh, and then the phone rings and Paul Chun picks it up. What? Well, just burn the shop down. Click. So yeah, you were telling me about the MTR. <laughs> so they're in a triad person's <laughs> office, and I like that. Paul is an excellent character actor that just if you just put him there and you're gonna get veteran presses. And I thought that was hysterical that that he, he makes uh, you know deals and uh, uh, and decisions on the fly there. Burn it down. And 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 also uh, that's the point of uh, the, um, they're depicting the reality of Hong Kong cinema because we know enough of the fact that triad investment was. A little bit of a. I, I, I like that that whole sequence, like the intro to it, just the nice uh, pan through the entire office where it's just complete and utter fucking chaos. Everybody's you know screaming into phones, no one's paying each other attention, and just kind of somehow in the midst of all this chaos, movies get made. You know, for some reason it did. I mean, when you hear stories of, um, I mean, I, I've talked to a couple of westerners who who's made Hong Kong action movies, and you, you sometimes are surprised how 
well as some movies are made because it seems so reckless and so uh, on the fly, this type of mm-hmm. uh, Hong Kong filmmaking. And we know Category 3 movies weren't these uh, big budget, well-conceived movies necessarily. I mean, this one, as we get a view of what they're making, and God knows what they're making. I think that's the point, that it's so fragmented, the scenes we're looking at that they're making in the movie, that it, we, we're not really supposed to know what or if there is any context to this um, apparent seven ripoff that they're that they've sold uh, uh, Paul Chun. <laughs> <laughs> they do a terrible job of ripping off seven. Let me tell you, I didn't see anything that made me think seven. But 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 I do like that. Um, it is depicting that a struggling cinema has to go through lows before highs again sometimes. And if you think you have integrity in that business then, you know, it's not easy to stay in business and actually maintain a job, you know. And uh, you may have to sink a little bit and make something more commercial. And I think that's an interesting sort of polar opposite because we we, we get that scene during the uh, where audiences are reacting to the movies they've seen at midnight. And what movies they thought was fun, and what movies the audience thought were utter utter crap. And to to me, Joshua, I don't know what you think. That was it's not uh, like um, exaggerated satire. I think that's the strict reality. Uh, audience audience yeah. reaction to movies. We we sit there and they they go back and they do you know film shoots spending you know fifty million dollars you know just because of something some peon said at a movie theater. <laughs> That it didn't have a movie didn't have enough action, or that they didn't like the love story, or something like that. Some fucker that you know works at Costco is just telling you know this these people to go back and spend multi millions of dollars for the sake of them, essentially. Yeah, but the audience uh, sort of dictates a little bit of what's going to be the trend, and some directors that might have been on a high before they are gonna uh, be considered uh, very disappointing. I mean, you you have that sequence where uh, Lo Ying and Leslie Cheung, they go to one of the screenings uh, of... Uh, he, he wants to demonstrate, this is the movie that we need to make because this, this, these audiences are loving it. And uh, what movie are they watching in the theater, Joshua? Erotic Torture Chamber Story. Well, well, Chinese torture chamber story. Erotic escape from brothel chamber <laughs> story. Ledgen one. Or was it two? <laughs> Meat pie. Fucking. <laughs> anyway, uh, my favorite bit of that is when it goes outside to the uh, to the man on the street interviews or whatever, and one of the girls is like, "I really didn't know what was going on in the movie," and her friend's like, "Yeah, but it was really good." And there you are. That's exactly the point that he's making. That they're loving this stuff, and you you shouldn't think sometimes of, of making the grand statement and the grand artistic statement. Make stuff that's fun, even though they might not remember exactly why it was fun. And that, for, to me, that's a valid point. I think it's also a hit at the audience. While I don't think that the film is talking down to category. Boy, three movies or anything like that. I think at the end of the film, you know, which spoilers, I guess, uh, the character learns that, you know, you can still make the film that you want to make, you know, within the confines of anything. But I, I think that little bit's also just pointing 
that you know sometimes people just want kind of uh, what's the word I'm, what am I looking for just lowest common denominator you know yeah, like people will go for that and the fact that one character ends up killing themselves basically over what these little girls say you know I, you know it's also speaking to that the audiences talk a little bit more like about that because that's not a necessarily a little minor character that's a director that louching one place so i'm gonna tell you the story afterwards but let me hear your take on, on that because you, you clearly picked up on the fact that he's named after the movie's co-director like well, what is that about so what do you think of that uh louching one's cameo and the whole uh, business leading up to the suicide and stuff i, I mean is it funny is it heartbreaking or i think that, i don't know you know it, it's strange and uh, basically, the whole sequence is that the the director is at his own premiere, and like these two like young punks or whatever shit all over the film, and uh, the same people that are listening to the two punks talk go to the director, and they're like, "Hey, what happened? You know, you, your film is being panned." <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, if you listen to those two guys, yeah, but uh, they're talking shit on the film. And so he's like, well, they have the right to choose what they want to see and blah, blah, blah. So he goes and has uh, some kind of like a, you know, person-to-person little meeting with a... A young, exciting, excited film director. Yeah, who's making an experimental film. And uh, while they do their, uh, what a dolly shot, where they watch two characters run, (laughs) uh, we see our director running on the opposite side of, uh, I guess like what would you call it a peer just opposite to them and uh, the smile on his face does kind of kill me as he goes to kill himself by jumping off of the pier you know 50 feet or however you know landing into the water and killing himself and that's our director Derek Yee who didn't kill himself but here's the thing he made a movie the year before Uh it's part Truth not a part, not truth, right? Uh, the movie he made the year before was Full Throttle with uh, Andy Lau. Uh, it's a it's a drama about uh, uh, bike racers and things like that. Did okay at the box office. Figured got, got some nominations. It's a good movie, but apparently Derek Yee nearly exhausted himself uh, mentally and psychologically making that movie. There was a lot of stuff going on personally. I think he put his own money into it as well. It, like it was. Mm-hmm. For, for for a movie full throttle that is that seems like a, a a glossy commercial thing that that movie was apparently one of the most difficult movies of his career to make and I think he's echoing the fact that if people would have crapped on this movie I don't know what I would do I mean I would sort of go mm-hmm. into my shell and accept the fact that well it, it's okay it's okay that they don't like it and maybe next one I don't know what if he's um, sort of uh, closing that chapter psychologically on himself by depicting Lao Ching Wan as Derek Yee and actually killing himself. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it is uh, it, it is uh, not a far little uh, hop to reality from what's depicted in the movie. It's uh, and, and you hear director Yee first. Well, that's probably maybe Derek, and later it's director Derek Yee Yee Tongxing. 
So it, there's no mistake in that. He's depicting himself in there, and it's a louching one uh, who gets a little uh, fun cameo here. But when we get to the movie set, and when they start making this movie, try to invest in a movie that's apparently a seven ripoff, and they shoot these in on minimal sets and uh, with a reluctant uh, uh, female star that Shu K plays. Is that entertaining? Fun? Is it? Uh, is it even? too much of a snapshot of Hong Kong reality where it doesn't become fun or it's where it's just depressing or what's the tone that the director strike here as we see movies being made here it's uh probably pretty close to the truth uh, <laughs> yeah it, and it's kind of funny that the film showcases like two halves of this filmmaking process uh in the first half you have the director who just is not invested in his project you know and uh he just kind of accepts all the bullshit, you know, the actress who refuses to do her nude scenes, the actress who doesn't want to be involved, the actor who, you know, can't put on a brave face when doing something he doesn't want to do. So you, you have two sides of that, and the film showcases both. And in the first, you have the director who's just there to collect a paycheck, and he's just like, yeah, okay, well, we'll take that, whatever, we'll take that shot. And then as the film progresses, an eventual, you know, series of events happens, and he becomes renewed and has, you know, some a new passion for the project. We see him becoming, you know, less willing to take that. He wants more takes. He wants to see it done properly. You know, he he develops more of a line of communication with his actors. And you know, I, I thought that was uh, pretty cool how they did that. And and they're still working with the same sort of conditions. The the uh, this is not a big set. Mm-hmm. Then normally it's. Uh, each set up is like a corner of a room, a, a quickly built bedroom, a quickly built uh, bar set, or you know, a scene where Elvis Choi and Shu K has sex against the, the bottles that are against the wall. So you, you're right, the, 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 he changes, but the conditions do not. And therefore, when he changes, his uh, artistic sensibility comes out. And therefore, I think it's celebrating what Hong Kong can come up with. Mm-hmm on the fly right. and when you put your mind to it and when you get cooperation obviously across the border because no wonder they, they don't cooperate because Leslie as the director he's just uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah cut let's let's do that and uh, he's timid he doesn't want to be involved with these people because it's porn right and look at that snotty motherfucker just turning his nose up to something we love I, I like that the movie uh, gets a jab at the handheld, blurry style of uh, <laughs> shooting movies because it, it's an obvious dig at Wong Kar Wai. But other filmmakers too. Uh, Sammo shot some of his action that way during this time uh, in the 90s, a little bl- blurry vision. And I think that's hysterical when they watch the rushes and realize they, they shot it handheld, it's blurry, and it's even worse than a Wong Kar Wai movie. It's even worse uh, versus, say, Fallen Angels or Shunking Express and its uh, shaky imagery. And I think that's... I love that they got that right. They 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 did their best to make it look worse, and actually the filmmakers of Viva Erotica made it perfect in the way that this sucks. What is going on here? I uh, I, I love that. And uh, obviously uh, the, uh, the director of photography points out that you can do this, but you can't rely on it, man. There is a right. time and place for handheld. Because doesn't, doesn't he want to do every scene? 
that he wants to do every scene with the handheld. Yeah, I think Leslie in his state where he doesn't care just goes with anything. And I, I think uh, the director of photography that Peter Noor plays so starts, they, they have a little uh, uh, VHS watching session late at night where they say that this can be done if you put some thought and uh, into it. But you can't just shoot it and shake it and expect to get away with it. Uh, you need to conceptualize. And I think that's a wonderful point. And I have to mention Peter Noor who plays the director of photography. Joshua, Peter Noor is an actual director of photography in real life. He is an actor, too. He is a director, too. He's the director of Erotic Ghost Story 2, the artistic Erotic Ghost Story with Anthony Wong in that uh, Wu-Tang white makeup that he wears in that movie. And Erotic Ghost Story 2 is quite the artistic endeavor, so he knows how to get beautiful shots on screen. Peter has gone on to be part of the biggest mainland Chinese movie ever. Peter was the director of photography on the Wu Jing movie Wolf Wolf Warrior 2. He's moved on. He, he, he shot the first one, but Wolf Warrior 2, which I'm sure you've heard, has just broken every record in, record in China and is doing well abroad. And that was Peter doing that. But he's also, he's also got his face for, um, for bit part acting. And here he plays a director of photography with some very sound views on how to put your you know filmmaking techniques to use and when you shouldn't put them to use and he also is this sort of anchor for leslie to uh, make sure he's um, he's on his side if leslie wants to commit then i'm with you and the crew is with you and i think that's uh it's not something you should be nominated for maybe but i think uh, peter is so great I, I love his face and it's so typically hong kong that he can do so many things you know an actual director of photography and uh, also can do acting and uh, and uh, now is enjoying a great success probably is going to shoot wolf warrior free as well because that's happening after that movie made like 800 or maybe close to 900 million us dollars worldwide and counting that's a lot billion dollar movie fuck it's a fun little movie. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you heard the fact that, oh, it's a flag-waving movie. So was Rambo in the 80s. So was certain 90s movies. And it's, <laughs> it, it's sort of that kind of movie. It, you can't take that seriously. They're not trying to turn you or anything. So. Tell you, I don't support communism, bucko. You take that, uh, I'd rather be, rather be dead than red, all right? Take that and smoke it, son. By the time uh, Derek E and Lord Chilung depicts that Leslie um, is uh, now inspired... Uh, I love that they replicate um, Clockwork Orange, the high sped, uh, the, the sped up sex scene in Clockwork Orange, if you remember that. Uh, they do it here at a bar, and in Clockwork Orange, um, uh, Malcolm McDowell, he meets a couple of ladies at, at a record shop, and then they go to his bedroom, and then the soundtrack goes into that classical piece. So, so, so clearly they're ripping off stuff the movie in the movie but now they're more inspired they're more uh, creative about it which i think is the great little uh, twist that you also talked about that uh, we're gonna make this fun and uh, good and uh, now we're verging on a marsh rather than rip off <laughs> right uh what do you think of her she's okay because um, she she seems to be like this gold digger type of character but but she isn't bossed around necessarily uh she refuses to do nudity initially and uh, but uh, what do you think as leslie and her starts to sort of sing, sync up and uh, all of that. So uh, do you think she was deserve, deserving of uh, an actress award? I do. I think that, uh, although it's probably not the type of role that 
it has such ups and downs. You know, the very at the very beginning of the film, she is so annoying, both within the film that they're shooting and outside of it. You know, her, you know, not willing to work with anyone, but you know, she's such a fucking stereotype at first. And I do like that the film opens up the layers, and we do see her as a human being. She doesn't stray, you know, so far away from that person that she is that, uh, you know, it becomes unbelievable. I mean, the very last scene with her in the film, if you know what I'm talking about, like during the little post-credits type thing, uh, it still shows her as that type of character. She has depth to her, but but she's still not so far away from what she was. But, uh, you know, I, I like the, you know, the way the film takes us on a journey with her, and they don't just, uh, keep her as this annoying piece of shit but she can be hard to take at times i I know people sometimes have a problem with her voice and and i also possibly know that people who know cantonese they think her cantonese dialect is annoying because it's she's from taiwan so if you use the mandarin in cantonese you can sort of pick up that her cantonese is mandarin uh there's a mandarin accent to that and i think people sometimes have a problem with that i always thought she was wonderfully charming and uh, such a delight. The, the design of the character is that she's supposed to be annoying in the beginning. And uh, I mean, it's funny to see her creatively refuse to drop the sheet while she yells for help, help, each arm up in the air rather than two arms up in the air. And she tries to argue that if I hide behind the couch, that'll be good. And if I put on a mask, that'll be good. <laughs> and she's a little kid that way. But um, I think she earns her stripes. In that uh, fantasy sequence where, where, well, it is on the movie set and then Derek E, Jingle Ma and crew, they go into a fantasy sequence where Leslie is talking about, you have to remember how one of your best orgasms was like. And that's what you're going to put in the scene. And they darken the set in the background. And you, the way Shuchi or Shuke listens to that, I really mm-hmm. like that beat because it's clear that she now... oh. The, um, yeah. the, the the sink is there and uh, it all sounds so pretentious that the set goes dark and it's all them in black it looks like the Charlie Rose uh, interview studio or something like that but it actually works because one thing Derek E is good at is just getting the natural interaction between actors on screen he's very very good at that um, especially depicting working class people which is actually a point I'll get to uh, at the end of my notes here but uh, that's the scene I think Shuke uh does well in because you know what joshua in that scene she listens mm-hmm. she doesn't have a monologue she listens and i thought she did that very well uh that's where i sat up and like oh my look at that she's not fucking loretta lee with a penis anymore <laughs> in that movie <laughs> i think that the uh i don't know what you'd call it it's like a um the flirtation between uh the two characters between her and the director very well handled. I love that it doesn't. Be- well, spoiler alert. Uh, I love okay. that it doesn't become a full-on uh, love story. You know, like oh well, now they're going to be together. I-, I like that it doesn't actually take that twist, and instead, it's just like this uh, kind of a small love affair without the actual intimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, like I love that. I love that moment right after what we're talking about, where uh, you know she continually gets better at cut after cut. You know, you, you see. Each scene, she goes from making these whimpering, weird noises that don't reflect 
someone actually having sex. And then she becomes, you know, more involved in it with each cut. And then finally, like, she's doing very well, and he still calls cut. And you think, oh, it's, she looks like she has kind of like a hurt look on her face. But in actuality, he just goes over there to clean her foot off because there was some dirt in the shot. And you can kind of see that it goes from her feeling hurt, as in, like, I'm giving my best, but it's actually just something that she can't control. And then they have this you know, intimate moment where he's touching her foot and it's, it's all very well played. Exactly. Because it's, it's verging on that triangular melodrama because Karen mm-hmm. Mock, who is the girlfriend of Leslie Jones character, she thinks uh, he's having an affair and uh, it, it's that sort of jealousy stuff. And uh, I, I do like that. They, they write a little line in the fact that he says, she's turned up in my fantasies. It's kind of inevitable. I'm not cheating, but I've, I'm being honest. She's turned up in my fantasies. And I'm working with her. I'm working on a sex movie, but I'm not cheating on her. Mm. Um, so it, it's that uh, it's it's verging on that. But Derek is on a roll here in the nineties. He, he he certainly knows uh, knows better. And what he's I, I was reminded of Celavi Moncherie in the way he depicts. Uh, family and working class people and that's why I think it's such a shame that Elvis Joy actually even he could have received an award for this performance because I think Elvis is wonderful because again spoilers he's his persona in movies but he's a family man Joshua and I think right that's oh my god it sounds so simple uh, Hong Kong simplicity I'm sure I'm sure it's it sounds so simple when I speak about it that anyone can go out and shoot that shit but no you can't because you gotta get that stuff right Uh, and I think that's one of my favorite little stretches of the movie when the family visits the set and they're not doing anything dodgy at that point and you see the the contrast that these aren't perverts that appear in these movies they're family men and women I like the whole conversation that uh, Elvis Joy has with Leslie Chung about uh, he's like well you know when I have a love scene coming up I'm just you know, open and honest with my wife, basically, that uh, I let her know what's going to be happening that day. And, you know, it, it's a small little thing, and it, the film doesn't ever actually, like, hinge upon that conversation and say, oh, well, you know, this is what you have to do, but, you know, you can t- see Leslie Chung taking it in. And, you know, had he been honest in his situation with his wife, things might, or his girlfriend, things might have been different. And I don't know, it's just a very touching little moment. Yeah, in the in the end, I don't think the movie uh, answers all its dramatic questions necessarily because um, mm-hmm. he has been a, he has he drifted away a little bit the more he became involved in creativity, which I think is the slight dark side of this movie that creators and makers sometimes do, and it mm-hmm. might have effect an effect on their relationships uh, when they sink their teeth into creativity, and um, that's. Um, you know, possibly it's going to be the the side effect of it all, and uh, and the movie doesn't hinge on the fact that oh they made a good movie after they 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 picked themselves up by the bootstraps and they made a good movie. Right. I think in the end it's a way too artistic movie, but it looks like a million bucks, and that's the point that they made right. it look like a million bucks rather than those Charlie Show movies that shot in a boring ass room with vanilla walls. And you just it just looks terrible and depressing. But here the point here is that when when you get into your creativity, you can make stuff look at least good, even if the movie isn't good. Or the or the, with the edited stuff with like a dead actress and uh, Charlie with gold dust flying around him. <laughs> yeah. 
and, and category three could be dark, as we know, with the Pauline Chan shower scene that turns up in many movies. Uh-huh. Like it could be that dreary, but um, here, here's a case for um, because I don't think Derek Yee and Lord Chilong think uh, think that much of the artistic movie they've created within the movie. They're, they're not necessarily saying that boy did he make a great movie that director, but that's how it came out because he he had artistry in him and it shows and Jingle Ma certainly uh, made that look a million bucks because the way that stuff is uh, edited together and uh, fade-ins and fade-outs and uh, double exposure of scenes and all of that so they they, uh, they made an art movie alright a seven ripoff <laughs> and if I could spoil it even further you know uh, the entire ending there's the big epilogue at the end where they kind of go over oh everybody was involved kind of went on and did this and people were successful etc etc at the end uh leslie chung goes oh and i know what you're looking you're wanting to ask most how did i do with all this and i was like no, no i wanted to know how the film did you know <laughs> and that the movie doesn't actually tell you it doesn't actually say necessarily that it was a success or anything like that it just states that everyone involved with it kind of became a success uh, i thought that was neat you know didn't exactly kind of left it up to your own imagination maybe it was super successful that's why everybody did it or maybe it's remarkable that they became successes because the film wasn't a success you know yeah it's it's about and again this is a trope but it's about coming together a little bit to as creators and uh, achieving a sync and uh, you know it has that aura of positivity i suppose and uh, they didn't need to resort to making a Wong Jing style movie, even if that would have made money at the box office, because uh, Wong Jing is referenced and Wong Jing is featured in a movie, and they don't attempt to make the actor in question be a lookalike for Wong Jing at all. Do you remember who um, who cameos as Wong I Jing? Don't. <laughs> no, that, that was Anthony Wong. That's Wong Jing. Oh, was it Anthony Wong? It was Anthony Wong. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he comes in and he's a total prick. Well, they called him Director Wong, right? I wasn't even thinking of Wong Jing. I'm thinking it's like an Anthony Wong joke. Ah, Waka. Okay. It, it's sort of like a hi. I'm 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 like Wong Jing, and look at you, my former uh, my former photographer, my former cameraman. Uh, I can hire you again. You can be the third assistant cameraman on my next show. That's okay. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> so he gets a little little jab. But uh, remember, Wong Jing was a great producer as, uh, of Category 3 movies. He, you know, he is behind Chinese Torture Chamber Story and Underground Banker and things like that. So uh, even Sex and Sin too. So um, he uh, he was the backbone of uh, that kind of movie as well. And and again, I, I like that we get a view of um, uh, what kind of people represented the backbone of making these kind of movies. And uh, that Hong Kong cinema, working in Hong Kong cinema, you can't take that for granted. Because it's such a volatile industry, and uh, again, an insight into the working class depiction that Derek Yee can do so well. So I, I take that away from the movie as well. Uh, it never gets too heavy-handed or stuffy or anything. It's just all good fun, but with valid nuances and depth uh, spread across the board, and uh, and a little bit of artistry too. So, and boobs. There are boobs. And boobs. Oh yeah, some great boobs. An old shot in sync sound too. We never mentioned that because it's not a given in 1996 that that would happen. But I'm glad they shot in proper sync sound, and we got to hear Elvis acting sync sound. Obviously, Shuke uh, with her accented Cantonese and uh, all of that good stuff, and that never ever hurts. So uh, that's the end of my notes. Uh, I want to mention anything else? Any favorite uh, favorite sequences that you didn't mention? No strap on sex in this one, right? 
No, I think uh, that there was a re- we reserved that for the second movie of this um, episode. It's going to be lots to talk about. Of course. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that um, they, uh, they they touch upon bootlegging as well, and uh, the fact that the movies are. I think they exaggerated a little bit because Paul Chun says that my movie is out already on VCD before the opening later tonight. But I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that would be possible in today's day and age. That would be possible too, obviously, with uh, screeners and stuff. So uh, uh believe at the end of 90s in Hong Kong cinema was um, was difficult. It nearly um, sort of uh, made industry consider packing it in because it wasn't right. worth it to do movies. Uh, movies came out on VCD immediately and uh, and uh, all of that but uh, it worked out somewhat uh, so it's all good uh, and as for availability of Viva Erotica the old Universe DVD in Hong Kong has not been updated or upgraded uh, but um, so it's an old non-anamorphic thing but you, you can still find stock on sites such as Yes Asia so it isn't uh, totally out of print anymore and it's a decent enough looking version of the movie so don't let that discourage you so uh, let's uh, go with that but uh after the break, uh, we move away from category free filmmaking, uh, about category free filmmaking, and into uh, classic, almost global exploitation territory with, um, w- you know, a w- women in prison, women in prison camp type of movie, this time done by the headset Shaw Brothers. So, Shaw Brothers did this too, not just swordplay, kung fu, but uh, no, every genre was uh, there for the taking, and uh, that's what Shaw Brothers did. In many cases, including in the case of Bamboo House of Dolls from 1973, and we'll be right back to discuss that movie. Uh, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to a very proper way to uh, introduce you all to the second half of this episode. And we're going to review the Shaw Brothers movie, Bamboo House of Dolls, from 1973. i got two plots here, two competing plots, if you will. So uh, pick the one you fancy most as sort of your motivator if you want to watch the movie or not. Uh, so the first plot from Hong Kong Movie Database is a battle monkey. He wrote an eloquent but to the point plot, which I appreciated, that goes as follows. Quote, something about the women's prison. <laughs> wow, that's perfect. Submitted that under the review section on Hong Kong Movie Database in 1999. But I think that's okay. <laughs> I'm hey, satisfied. I mean, they should just put that on the back of the... Like the back of the box should just be a bunch of pictures of naked women and then that written next to it. You know? Something about some women in a prison. Yeah, something, whatever, some bullshit about that. So enjoy, <laughs> enjoy it or not. <laughs> but uh, the, the actual plot oh, uh, from Hong Kong Movie Database as well, it was uh, good enough. I certainly couldn't have written it any better. So a uh, quote from uh, the user M. Pong uh, Pun. 
on HKMDB. It takes place during World War II. The Japanese are mean bastards who come in and take over a clinic that's full of women, women of course, after they finish off a uh, Western-downed uh, pilot uh, in over-the-top fashion. And they practically make all the females in the clinic... Uh, uh, work as a sex uh, slave after they ship them off to detention camp. All the Japanese uh, get their rocks off uh, on the female captives, as we see, including a wicked lesbian, played by Terry Liu, who was the princess dragon mom in Inframan, but also she was the blind wife in Girl with Long Hair, and, uh, if you remember that character. Uh, and she plays the lesbian uh, who is dying for some female flesh here as part of the uh, Japanese. But as you watch the film, she, uh, the film starts to slip away from the trashy side of filmmaking with female bondage, breasts, sex and whatever. And introduce a little storyline, you see? One of the female captives actually know a hidden place in the countryside filled with gold. So you got two little um, two little movies here, or three little movies: uh, Women in Prison, Women in Prison Camp, uh, the Escape movie, and the Slight Heist movie as well. So they they are populating it with a couple of threads, but is it too many threads? We'll get to that. But I want to mention some brief notes on the director, and uh, you know, a director Kui Chi Hong. That is, and in all likelihood, if you've encountered his movies, there, there's an element to them of it's, they, they, got, they got a tough aura, nasty aura, gritty violence, and even being visually inventive. Uh, and he's the director that worked himself up through the ranks of uh, Shaw Brothers uh, as assistant director for directors such as Chang Che. And he got himself the reputation, Joshua, of being one of the best assistant directors uh, working in the studio. Uh, Solar Works. Uh, in terms of directing, initially were more mainstream uh, comedies and fantasy and what have you. Movies like Intrigue in Nylons, which is just bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk about not being invested in your movie. It shows. It's a, it's a movie about rival nylon stocking salespersons, whatever. Uh, such a such a bad time. So that's not a movie you should pursue, but uh, rather when he started crafting darker stories like uh, Stranger in Hong Kong, you realize after watching that and then seeing some more that that, that all wasn't a fluke. But, but the realism, grit and exploitation side of his filmmaking was clearly something he wanted and it would come out in more full force in movies such as Bamboo House of Dolls, Payment in Blood, Ghost Eyes and The Killer Snakes. He was also noted for his take on a crime movie as well, with The Tea House and Big Brother Cheng being notable genre contributions for Shaw Brothers. And he became a frequent director in the short movie series The Criminals, that also, uh, you know, essentially three or four stories in one. And uh, that also housed the filmmakers such as uh, Sun Chung and even Mu Tunfei did an episode for, uh, for The Criminals. Uh, very good episode, actually. And then it kicked into almost full horror and at- atmosphere by the time the 80s hit uh, with movies such as Corpse Mania and Boxer's Omen. And uh, I remember you you guys did Corpse Mania on the old uh, V Cinema podcast uh, many moons yeah. ago. So. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's sort of a switch to different genres, which many filmmakers could do. But I, I just find, find that kind of cool that uh, he didn't make Bamboo House of Dolls in 1983 as well. So far from it. 
Kuei uh, Chi Hung stayed with the company and directed his last movie for the company, the comedy Misfire, in 1984. And uh, he retired after this and died in 1999 at the age of 62. So he never got to see the resurgence of his movies because all of these Shaw Brothers movies remastered on DVD. That started um, sort of uh, two years later and what have you. So, um, But uh, he, he certainly has built up a little, um, uh, a little um, uh, cult following, if you will. Um, as for short opinions, I have a very short opinion, so I'll, I'll do my first. Uh, all of these elements are quite compelling, and it's got the Kuei Chi Hung stamp on it all, uh, but I think uh, he would only get better. Uh, it's one of those movies that he's into, but it isn't at the same sort of uh, uh, filmmaking impactful level that I associate with uh, certain of his short movies and the feature-length movies that would uh, come. But it's all... Um, it's what you want. It's all here. So you, you can't be disappointed if this is what you wanted, uh, as I described in the plot. It's all here, man. So uh, it's a, he certainly is invested rather than versus intrigue in nylons, where he certainly wasn't invested. Um, so I, I can't say it's a full-on classic, but I like it. So there you are. Joshua, what do you think of Bamboo House of Dolls? I think, you know, while I do think that it does have its problems, I think that it's probably a good 15, 20 minutes too long. I think that the hour 30 market should have hit, or even a little bit less than that. But with that said, I still think this is pretty damn good work right here. I think this is uh, one of the more entertaining women in prison films I've seen in a while. Are you genre savvy Savvy in terms of that, uh, whether these movies came from uh, US or elsewhere? I've seen my fair share, basically. and uh, There are a few uh, that really stand out to me, but... Uh, so many of them can be just kind of like the same old thing over and over again. Uh, I think that this this is a film that seems like it was inspired by the Corman movies and like 71, 72, Women in Cages and films like that. And uh, I think that it one-ups those movies. I, you know, I've never... I do like the uh, Corman films or, you know, the films produced by him, but I, I do tend to think of them as being pretty weak, whereas this one I found to be a lot of fun the whole way through. I was very invested in it. Uh, some of the escape attempts actually kind of had me like gripping at my seat a little bit. You know, I was like, oh shit, don't let him get caught. You know, so I think that's uh, that's worth something. You know, with a genre like this. I agree. I mean, I, I can imagine a Corman movie sometimes uh, having uh, more chops market-wise to showcase the movies, <laughs> but the actual movies weren't through and through. A, you right. know, wall-to-wall things that maybe the budget wouldn't allow that, but versus Bamboo, would, Corman's movies weren't full-on studio movies. Bamboo, House of Dolls, is a studio movie, and they chose in many areas, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, there are some scenes in here that uh, you really get the sense of that there being a war going on. Like, the amount of uh, extras that they had was pretty fucking impressive. And, and the thing is, if, if you look at Shaw Brothers, and it's one of my most uh, joyous discoveries, because I only knew Shaw Brothers from afar, really, because I knew they made uh, kung fu movies, right? Uh, watching trailers and what have you. But uh, before the DVD line came out, I didn't know they did everything and then some, because they were capitalizing yeah. on genres like any fucking studio would. So, And they weren't timid about what they put on screen. Because once they ignited their respective genres, they went for it. They ignited, um, filmed um, Huang Mei operas and made that successful. And in grand fashion, they ignited the the wuxia film 
and made that grand and successful. Then there was a bloody swordplay. You had a kung fu movie, and then after a while, horror bled into it all and exploitation. And I, I was actually wondering that if you had any take of what it was potentially ripping off or what it was responding to trend-wise, because I'm not genre savvy when it comes to WIP, if you will. So, uh, I mean, shit, the only one I know is probably a later one. Didn't Linda Blair do a famous one in Caged Heat? Is that it? Yeah, that's it, I believe. Uh, but yeah, this was def- This was right after uh, Roger Corman and... Uh, uh, oh, God, what's his face? It directed the at least the first of those. There were like three seminal uh, Roger Corman-produced women in prison films that were all shot in South America. And, you know, this film kind of has that same style to it. You know, it's very apparently very, you know, hot and humid. Uh, the girls wear skimpily, you know, clad uniforms. And... Uh, it kind of hits a lot of the same tropes, the the lesbian uh, warden or what have you. That that would come a little bit more later in the genre, but uh, you've got that. you got the men taking advantage of the women. you got the girls standing up against them. But, but, but even with those uh, tropes, man, it, so far down the road of the, uh, and watching this genre now, I mean, does this still come out as... Yeah, this is a little bit better. It's not cookie. It's not cookie cutter, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, and that's what it is because it brings that like Hong Kong flavor to it. That uh, you know, kind of the crazy stuff. Like what the hell now? That you know, the, like the scene with the guy who takes one of the girls to go, you know, have a night of fun, and he ends up torturing her with glass. You know, that, like that's this sort of thing. It might have been just... the blind girl as well. I'm not too sure now. It might have been the it blind was. girl too. It was. <laughs> it, it was because she couldn't see, so he, she's just whimpering in the corner. So he's throwing like pieces of glass <laughs> at her, and it's falling to the side. So the second she starts crawling away and stuff because she can't see, she doesn't know where to step, and she's stepping on glass. It, it's brutal, but it it reminds me of uh, you know Men Behind the Sun or something like that. At those moments of just depraved cruelty from out of nowhere. And he really starts that way, Kuei Chiu Hung, because I, I agree, though, that this could have been 90 minutes, though, but he, he certainly is, f- for a fair amount of time, still has his uh, foot on the gas, so to say, because it certainly starts quick, and the violence is loud, and the frame is very active, and uh, Kuei Chiu Hung often always worked with the same cameraman, uh, Yu Chi, so... Uh, and he's always moving with the action rather than just using the age-old you know distinct zoom in which is here but it's it's mm-hmm. uh it's varied up you know and uh, uh and he mm-hmm. and he gives us no heads up about this ruthlessness that these japanese people they, they don't talk before shooting someone they don't talk before shooting their presumably the american pilot they find that he's they find him they threaten to kill the girls if he doesn't come out and when he does boom dead and yeah i think that's rather refreshing that you know, he doesn't ease us into it all. And and also, thankfully, he can keep... He, he doesn't, like, um, uh, parade his um, elements in the first ten minutes and then struggles to make something else. You know, it, at least it spread out fairly well, even though, yes, ten minutes at least could have been shaved off this. Uh, and, and then you have the showcase of uh, the outdoor facilities because the Shaw Brothers, they weren't just studio. They had a massive land, right? So this prison camp is built on the land and boy is that a advantage to this production because this camp looks expansive it's not just like in viva erotica shot against 
one corner of a room trying to represent a bigger space or whatever. This is a big space that they act and make in. It's uh, it's very impressive. I usually tend to think of like with the Shaw Brothers stuff. It seems like more of their later films started doing more than just the small sets and everything. I don't know if that's just because I'm so used to watching like kung fu films from that era, but I know like even the kung fu films as things went along in the early 80s and everything, they they stopped having that studio look and they were shooting more outside and you know expanding things. So I was a little surprised to find that this was 1973 when I was watching it because it's it's such a huge expansive and just massive looking production you know like the the sequences that are shot at night with the japanese soldiers in the camp like when uh all the bells and alarms are going off and you just see countless japanese soldiers running you know from one area to the next it's like wow geez where they, they really put their um, production facilities uh, to good use they were aware of how their movies could be perceived if they went the extra mile and they, they certainly did regardless uh, what genre they did uh, uh, as a matter of fact you know I, I like the studio bound stuff often the sword play movies were studio bound because the the fantasy setting it didn't matter if they were fighting in the forest and the sky looked a bit fakey and stuff like that death duel as we talked about is a good example of having an indoor set act as outdoor for the story that's all fine it sort of adds to the atmos and aura of the movie but here I'm not sure they even are shooting on studios. They might have built the uh, the facilities where they eat and, uh, and clean themselves. They, they, it might have been right there on the spot. I think they, they, they had the space to do so. So it might have been right there and there. All they needed to shoot this damn movie was uh, built uh, from just from scratch. Who knows? Because, it did, because this isn't, isn't a set that they reused or anything. It's for this movie. What else is there? Well, it, it's, it isn't... It seems packed it, in terms of uh, the, the despair of it all, and uh, but it certainly it doesn't feel over the top to me in terms of what they roll out, and uh, you know it, it it goes for obviously grim shock, like when someone tries to scale the wall and then ends up being electrocuted, and uh, mm-hmm. you, you know it in the wrong filmmaker's hands, all of this would have been. Uh, uh, it would have come off as over the top if they rolled out too much stuff in, in one go. But I think Kuei Chi Hung spaces it out fairly well in order to not have the escape attempt be by, uh, you know, minute 30. <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. at least it's spaced out a little bit and we get to know the characters a little bit. It's not a great character piece, but uh, at, at least they dive into things like uh, and justify the fact that the westerners uh, speak mandarin uh, at least they say that uh, you know i'm a nurse right. i work for the red cross i know mandarin uh, in the case of uh, the danish actress uh, that's our lead actress uh, Birte tube uh, so you know hong kong movies didn't take time to address that at all sometimes everybody just spoke cantonese to each other even random westerners on the street <laughs> speak fluent cantonese or, or or whatever so at least they, they pay attention to that but uh, the, the only thing i guess they veered, stayed away from was to make uh, it fairly realism by having all chinese actors playing japanese soldiers speak japanese all the time they don't um it's the mixture but you know it's kind of to be expected as well i guess or maybe too sim- uh, maybe you just need to make it simple for the audience to uh, to get uh, mostly a chinese language movie delivered to them but um 
it never bothers it never bothers me that stuff. I was just impressed that they took the time to um, establish that it, it's feasible that a Red Cross nurse would know Mandarin. They were you know working in China, uh, in, in China or Japan or whatever. So it's just kind of uh, interesting the fact that the I guess it's all about just wanting a different type of set of boobs. The fact that they have uh, such an international cast in this one. I mean, yeah, for the plot's sake, yeah, it makes sense. You know why you have. Uh, foreigners there but you know the fact that they decided to make this movie and feature these blondes i, I wonder if that was just an international distribution idea they're thinking well well, well she was at least in denmark she uh she had come up in uh Tova. she had come up in a, i think a few uh softcore sex comedies in denmark um and mm-hmm. uh she was in a couple of Shaw brothers movies uh, one was miniskirt gang and one presumably shot in Denmark because it's called Sexy Girls of Denmark, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I, I think a little bit of international exposure could be uh, and market could be hinged on her, despite it spacing it out. Uh, these uh, developments are running a little bit too long. Do you think it uh, runs into a problem of being poorly paced at all? Uh no. I, at least I didn't have that issue with it. I felt like. Yeah, even though it, it runs on too long, I, I felt like I was kind of enthralled by it through most of it. Uh, I think that the part that could probably be shaved down a bit is probably after the initial escape. Some of that, while it's all pertinent to the plot, I felt like they could have got to the gold sooner. Yeah, it's a little bit of a day and uh, day and night cycle that they repeat because at day they're they're working at night they're mm-hmm. uh, they're sexual pleasure for for the japanese uh, uh they vary it up a little bit because uh beta tube has a scene where presumably that's going to happen to her and she fights back so at least uh you, you got a little bit of resistance but uh, I, I i think that was my main reaction to that i think you're you're verging on repeating the day and night cycle a little bit too much uh for for my liking but uh the day and night cycle includes uh some crazy wacky elements so joshua it's impossible to uh uh, escape talking of uh, what uh, the Terry Liu character does and what she have in her possession to make um, a night of uh, domination uh, pleasurable, if you will. So, is there a strap-on in this movie by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> As if the answer is no. Yeah, like there's a No, no, why would you think that? <laughs> Was that the... Uh, fun for the movie too goofy for the movie or just sort of well this is genre they, this is Hong Kong filmmakers being genre savvy or, or, or it's not even something Corman did this is that the, that Asian influence man of because uh, like there's the Japanese series too there, there's a few Japanese women in prison films that part of the whole Roman porno line and the pink film line of like a the ones that have been released over here, True Story of a Woman in... Was it True Story of a Woman in Jail? True Story of a Woman in Prison? They have uh, two of those films. <laughs> true, <And> true Story <laughs> of the Woman whatever. in Jail and the Prison. Like, different movies. They're completely different. Well, it could be, you know. I mean, have you seen those film titles? But, uh, yeah, anyway, those films, same thing. Women with uh, dildos and stuff. It's, it's that... I don't know. You don't see that as much, at least as my experience of uh, in the European and the, uh, the uh, American markets. 
I don't know what's up with that, but uh, yeah, and, uh, this film, not only does she have a strap-on, but she has a wooden strap-on. Oh, was it wooden? I, 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 I just noticed that that thing's big. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when she opens up the crate, and like, you know, I expected them to have a little more emphasis on this thing. I kind of was hoping that, not hoping, but kind of, kind of expecting to see the full-on strap-on or her wearing the strap-on, but you can't, you don't really see either one. You just see a wooden dildo, and it's attached to what appears to be leather. The audience kind of makes the inference, and, and uh, we see a shadow next as the, the uh, guard begins to move towards the other girl, and we see her kind of grimace at first, and I think she gets into it, doesn't she? Uh, at least in the second scene with Terry Liu when she takes that girl to the side and brings the soap with her and uh, soaps her up. I think yeah. that, uh, that girl I know got into it. But uh, but yeah, she, she's not like viciously just thrusting it or anything. You know, she's clearly dominating that poor girl, but it's uh, it's her version of tender, I suppose, because she doesn't like go <laughs> and just wreck her or anything, you know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and 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 that girl is an Infra Man as well. One of my favorite Shaw Brothers movies ever. That's uh, Terry Liu as well. That's, uh, so there you go, a working actress doing very well. Yeah. The funny thing is, and I like this a lot. This fact, I don't know if you thought about this, and I hope Kuwaiti Hung and crew were doing this consciously. The one thing they don't roll out in an obvious fashion. They don't roll out Lolit in an obvious way. Lolit is a male yeah. lead here, but they don't sort of make a thing of, hey, I'm here, the star of the movie in a, fi- in a close-up or anything. L- they make Lolit sure. part of this sort of, he's there, but he's behind his right. glasses and he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. And I thought that was mightily fun. Not that the twist is surprising or anything. But I thought that was mightily fun right. that for half a movie, Shaw Brothers are taking a big old uh, chance on keeping their main lead uh, sort of out of it. He's there, but he's not there that much. And then, boom, he is there. I like that, actually, that structure. No, I agree. He uh, He's very toned down, doesn't really have a, a big presence until like at least the second half of the film. Uh, he just kind of is... A, a kind of a brooding presence, like he, he actually is kind of scary in his role. You get kind of a different vibe from him than what is ultimately revealed. Yeah, and he could, um, he, he wasn't typecast as such at this point in his career. I mean, the longer the 70s ran, the more he was merely used as a heavy, but we're only a year or two away from uh, uh, King Boxer was made a year or two earlier so he's still in that phase where he looks a little bit younger and they used him in a variety of roles but i i i always think he's great and um he uh he adds value to most movies he uh he uh, acts in i mean all of those cheap taiwanese movies where he turns up during the last 10 minutes that's great but it's not like he puts in exemplary effort because it's the 10th movie that week he probably did the same in so you know it's a it's a work 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 and all of that so but uh yeah, I I really dig it. Uh, it's a nice little. Uh, they, they don't treat it as a, oh my gosh, twist or anything. But uh, they just simply keep him mm-hmm. uh, a bit hidden, uh, not just behind the glasses. But um, we know it's him. 
but he he doesn't take center stage or anything um, he he continues to add like well choreographed violent moments there's small struggles and fights and all of that is very snappy and gritty and continues to be quite violent it, this movie doesn't spare us on in terms of uh, people being shot or anything it uses squibs quite effectively and for once it doesn't look like a ton of uh, uh, too bright Shaw Brothers blood or anything for once it looks a little bit more uh, uh, nasty as it should you know um so that that's engaging it's engaging on a genre level the only thing that sort of is bad is the fact that most of the characters are types and they are disposable also and while we root for their freedom in all honesty joshua it's not terribly important to us the freedom it's it is a genre movie after all so we're not i wasn't emotionally rooting for them to get out i was just uh, emotionally rooting for Kuei Chi Hung to continue to make a, a, a good little genre movie. There, there's only one example towards the end where I became a bit bummed in terms of what happens to one character, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, we'll get to it. There are so many of these movies where it's always just like a girl who's like wrongfully accused of something who ends up going to jail and she's always like sweet and sincere and she's surrounded by all these snakes and blah 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 there's, there's always that so this film doesn't really have that so much there is uh there, like the blonde haired girl she's kind of that for this movie she's kind of that mean female starlet but uh not not so much that it stands out you know no i, I agree i mean they they keep uh she might lead but they uh she isn't uh uh, breaking through as such. I think it's more the elements surrounding them, right. the good production elements aid most of what goes on here. I mean, uh, shit, they, they even shamelessly just go for torture scenes lit in green and pink. And I think mm-hmm. they're allowed to because that's sort of fun to just play. We're not making historical art here. We're not making social commentary a la Men Behind the Sun. Uh, we're making adult stuff that's harsh and exploitation in style. It doesn't make sense to have a torture room that looks like a photo lab, right? It is lit in that type of red where that you can have in a photo lab that's obviously light sensitive. But uh, I, I enjoy that shameless sort of uh, let's just brighten up the screen man in white screen. I do think that the characters manage to stand out enough, though. I think that uh, especially having the international cast, I think that... Uh, it kind of helps things like, you know, you watch those Japanese uh, films, you watch some of the uh, American uh, women in prison movies, and, you know, unless somebody has a good gimmick, it's hard to tell everybody apart, you know? And uh, this film kind of does that. You got the blonde haired girl, you got the brunette who uh, kind of is in love with the female uh, guard, you've got uh, the blind girl, you've got the blind girl's keeper who's kind of one of the more important uh, uh, figures in the film. You know what I'm saying? So everybody kind of has something. That, uh, that is a good point, actually. I mean, we, we, we do remember some of them, and, and it's exciting when they do try and make their escape. They're, those night sequences where they avoid the searchlights and all of that. Which That's I so good, I think. Uh, I, I was so impressed with that. They can build... Again, they're not acting in one corner. They can move through an environment. And they have searchlights. They have towers. They have layers to the frame. 
right? And that's built mm-hmm. stuff. It's not faked stuff. It's not matte paintings or anything like that. That that's what they built out, out there in the bay that they owned the Shaw Brothers company. So right. uh, it just aids the production quality so much. That stuff. I won't spoil necessarily the finale, but uh, but a few beats here. I thought. Uh, their their final escape plan seemed a bit foolish the way they started to run into that big door with the small car because I thought to myself that door must be reinforced man you can't just drive a small car through that thing <laughs> you know what I mean like and they and they and they continue to circle the yard and uh, we won't spoil too much but they, there's a twist to this scenario though why it seems a little bit foolish why they're getting away with uh, not being mm-hmm. shot to death necessarily in that car because they're, they're surrounded by weaponry so you would just imagine they would be shot to death, death like in a millisecond uh, trying to do mm-hmm. that stuff but you know it's fun uh, by that point it wasn't like the movie shouldn't have fun because mm-hmm. uh, it it's a it's, it's a chase scenario it's a little bit of a high scenario so um it's all it's all really good uh, there's no no it's not a true complaint it's one of those things that I just, was just hmm guys like the square one, that plan didn't work. I think we're dead now, by the way. <laughs> um, and the only thing I've got to mention there, um, I don't think we're going to spoil it, but uh, at least um, when you find out uh, a little bit more who's the traitor in the group and what that traitor is prepared to do, what happened to one character I like for two reasons. One, it's actually quite emotionally devastating. Two, it's that piece of violence that happens to that innocent character which I'm sure you remember. It's really what I also associate with Kuei Chi Hung, and we've seen that in the early parts of the movie. There's no build-up to that massively tragic event. Mm-hmm. It's just, boom. Un- unceremonious, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's uh, that's enough for you to interpret that situation. It's not done too quick or anything. It's rather, oh, my, not her! Uh, uh, yes her because that's how i make movies that's world is unfair little boy (laughs) so 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 yeah it might not be his best but uh, i i I think it's uh he has his stamp on the movie director quay and it's always wise to remember that Shaw brothers weren't just squeaky clean but a commercial entity that were capable of Mm -hmm. multiple genres and this was one of the things they did really well they they could uh, they could uh, shock you really well actually and um that this movie Dustin spots actually very well. So you know, it's kind of funny. The Tea House and uh, Big Brother Chang were probably the two first Shaw Brother films that I saw that were like non-martial arts. Do you remember how you mentioned the grittiness? I remember the you know kind of like the gritty 1970s kind of action vibe to them, but they were also still very um, episodic and uh, overly wrought with emotion, but still. There was something very special about those movies. I like both of them. And uh, I enjoyed uh, seeing the outside world other than just the studio. So, I don't know. Have good memories. Yeah, they, 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 I haven't actually pursued those two for some reason. But uh, I, I got a fair grasp of uh, the various things he did, you know, crime-wise or horror-wise. I'm still, uh, I haven't seen, for instance, the Hex movies. I think they're fairly well thought of. Hex versus Witchcraft. Hex mm-hmm. after Hex. Uh, Hex, which I guess is the first one, but uh, the likes of Boxer's Omen is uh, certainly a uh, wild, unique Hong Kong movie. Um, um, I've forgotten most of it, but I just remember, you know, it brought out all the stops in terms of horror and probably black magic and also 
you know, good fun in the vein of, maybe this is unfair, but I'm going to say it anyway, in the vein of Seeding of a Ghost and those movies that came out at that time where Shaw Brothers really cranked horror and really did it well because they, they weren't doing as well with Kung Fu and Kung Fu comedy, but horror of the 80s at Shaw Bros. That was something to behold, I think. Uh, that was something they did really well. And uh, uh, among his uh, Kung Fu movies, I know the likes of Killer Constable is a very acclaimed movie because it still has his stamp on it to a degree. Um, I like Killers on Wheels. It's actually uh, quite a uh, violent movie, um, even though the title sounds like a common title as well. Killers on Wheels. You haven't seen this before. <laughs> la la la. But... Uh, uh, and the killer snakes, I think, is um, you know, for all its pros and cons in terms of what they do to snakes in that one, it's um, it's an atmospheric one. I think it's a a take on um, what was the movie with uh, the guy who trains his rats to uh, um, do his bidding? Uh, it was remade with Crispin Glove. Willard, yeah. And I don't know Willard was before, but it's sort of in the vein of uh, well, let's switch that animal to snakes instead and have a character that's bullied and pushed down fight back that way but mm-hmm. uh, it's a good movie i like killer snakes uh, tough to take but um uh so that, that that's it i'll conclude my notes uh, anything else you want to say joshua this was really solid actually both of these films were really great this week so uh, i would recommend both movies to anybody just looking for anything that sounds remotely similar to what we've discussed if you want to see some wooden dildos this is the movie to see there it is. Put that on a box art when you reissue this uh, damn movie because it's uh, it's quite hard to find it. Uh, it, it was uh, put out uh, on Hong Kong DVD uh, remastered uh, courtesy of the Celestial and IVL Shaw Brothers line. It's not in print anymore and used copies of the DVD are fairly expensive, not massively expensive to the degree where you kind of think they just roll the dice and uh, that's the price. Yeah, I saw prices uh, for you know thirty, forty dollars or twenty, thirty pounds, so a little bit too expensive, but okay. Uh, but I, I recommend keeping your eye out for better deals. Uh, if you're not in need of English subtitles, there is a German Blu-ray out um, of the movie, but uh, uh, you know it has uh, presumably Mandarin and German. And if you're fine with that, then uh, that's an option. But otherwise, uh, uh, look for better deals out there. It, it isn't on iTunes. A, a fair amount of uh, Shaw Brothers movies are on iTunes, but um, uh, not this one. So um, as far as I know, I looked both at the US side and um, and the Swedish side because uh, we also got a fair amount of uh, of um, Shaw Brothers movies on iTunes. The only downside to it all is that most of the Shaw Brothers line on iTunes has both English and whatever Chinese is applicable, and we did we didn't get that on our side, so uh, it's kind of a drag that we didn't. But um, I think we're done. Uh, I um, have no uh, plan for my next episode uh, that I want to announce, but I have some plans uh, unofficially for some discoveries, modern discoveries that I've made. I'm going to run by Joshua and see what he thinks of them. But uh, in the meantime, we are. This Week in Sleaze, and uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including the backlog of all our episodes, so go to podcastonfire.com, uh, relevant uh, social media links, links to our iTunes feed, all available in the show post and permanently on the site, so check that out, and uh, that's us, so let's stop the fucking and uh, make our own damn handheld porn movie. <laughs> <laughs> With women in prison. Yes, it's going to be called Bamboo House of Strap-Ons. <laughs>
if you can uh, if you can interpret it through the blurry slow motion handheld camera work that I'm gonna employ. So that's it. <laughs> so we're we're out. We're gonna make it now. <laughs> we're gonna make it, and we're gonna make it. <laughs> gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs>